Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. This season is all about intentional comfort, and we'll be taking a look at the crossroads of the inspiration, intention, and action that you can take to bring more comfort and joy to your everyday. This is your host, Paula Jenkins. Welcome to episode 308 here on Jumpstart Your Joy. This week on the show, I'm really excited to be featuring an interview with William J. Peters. He's the author of the brand new book, At Heaven's Door, and it's all about shared death experiences. William J. Peters is the founder of the Shared Crossing Project and the director of its research initiative. Recognized as a global leader in the field of shared death studies, he has spent decades studying end-of-life experiences. He is a practicing grief and bereavement therapist, and he holds degrees from Harvard and UC Berkeley. I'm really excited to have him on to share more about these shared death experiences and how we can better understand the veil between life and death itself by taking a deeper look at what we can learn from shared death experiences. It's a really great conversation. Before we get to the show, I want to wish you all a very warm welcome and say thank you so much for tuning in this week. It is such a delight to get to do this show. And as you know, we're talking about intentional comfort here in season seven. And we're going to tie all of that in with the conversation here with William in just a minute as well. If you want to find out more about Jumpstart Your Joy, the show, the 307 past episodes, myself, all you need to do is go over to the website, which is jumpstartyourjoy.com. While you're there, you can sign up for the newsletter where you'll get emails from me when a new episode goes live, along with some really joyful things to consider for the week. And you could also purchase my book, which came out in 2021. It's called Jumpstart Your Joy, Heart-Centered Ways to Find Joy in the Messy Middle. And there are a couple links there on the homepage for both of those. So every once in a while, I get a pitch that comes across my desk that really lights me up. And this one for William J. Peters and his brand new book, At Heaven's Door, is one of those. I was so excited to talk to him because if you've listened to the show before, you know that I feel like the the emotions of grief and joy are really two bookends of the same thing. They're both such extreme emotions and our society doesn't necessarily know what to do with them. And so it's interesting to me to look at both as we have these discussions about joy. I also was super interested to ask William about shared death experiences. I studied near-death experiences some in college, as you will learn, and it turns out I think I wondered if I'd had a shared death experience at the passing of my grandmother when I was a child. You're going to get to hear every juicy detail of that in this conversation. Turns out, yes, I did. Um, So it was interesting to me to be able to discuss all of this with William. And I really appreciate that he's bringing these conversations and some of the work that he's done with clients about death and dying and shared death experiences to the forefront, because I feel like we all just need to talk about this a little bit more and dive in a little bit further. So welcome to the show, William Peters. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's, it's such a delight. I know my audience probably already knows this about me, but I feel like the discussion of joy goes hand in hand with like how we experience grief and how we experience hardship in life. And so when your book at Heaven's Door came across my inbox, I was like, oh, yes, <laughs> this is a conversation that I totally want to have because you talk about shared death experiences. And that's your realm of expertise as far as who you work with as patients as well, I understand. But before we get there... <laughs> because I'm so excited about this topic. Will you tell us what were your earliest sparks of joy? What brought you joy as a child? I remember being just a really 
energetic, curious, kind of probably ADD, ADHD, you know, as a child. And I, I say that in a good way, because while I was in trouble at school, uh, I was really excited about living life and being physically active and in nature and playing sports. I love physical contact. I was just one of these high contact little boys who was just always rough and tumble, but not in an aggressive way, just love to be feeling my body and playing in the world. So I know you had experiences early on in teenage years that kind of maybe tipped your hand towards where you are now, but how would you say that you arrived at the space where, you know, you're really focused on working with people in grief and bereavement and shared death experiences? I pondered this quite a bit, and I think you're right in terms of that first experience that you alluded to when I was 17 years old was a classic near-death experience. I was skiing in Squaw Valley, right outside Lake Tahoe. Typical, ordinary day, and I was racing down the mountain, and I caught an edge and was catapulted into the air, and I was in the air a long time. So when I landed, my skis didn't release, and so I crushed my spine, Mm -hmm. and I was catapulted out of my body. I was dark for a while. like There was no sensation or sense of aliveness for a while. When I came to, I was moving away from the ski area, my body, of course, and I was moving away quickly. I was enamored. I should say it was not a painful experience at all. It was quite beautiful and I felt lovely, but I was moving away quickly from the planet. And I remember seeing Lake Tahoe, then San Francisco Bay Area, continental U.S. And then I was in this beautiful solar system. And, and I, during this time, my life was being reviewed, everything I'd done up to that point. And the review was very informative and got my attention. Mm-hmm. What I saw was the, I was a karmic teaching in terms of everything that I had done mattered. So if I had been kind to someone that had a positive repercussions that rippled out, if I'd been kind of mean or not nice, then that had its own set of negative repercussions. And so I got that teaching and then I found myself in this tunnel and the light appeared, this big, beautiful, luminous light. And I identified that light as God. And I just said, wow, I'm dying and I don't want to die. And unlike the majority of near-death experiencers who are very much at peace, I was at peace, but until that point, most near-death experiencers are fine. They're like, okay, this is great. I'm much better than where I was on planet Earth. In my case, I was like, no, 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 no. I haven't done what I came here to do. I need to return. And I pled with this God who was so powerful and so loving and ominous. And all of a sudden I felt a pushback and a a very strong, sincere, make something of your life. And then I spun back into my body. And that was a whole nother thing that I didn't know how I was going to get back into my body, but I made it. So that experience really impacted me. But I, I didn't talk about that experience for about a decade. I didn't even know that I had it, quite frankly. I mean, in terms of my conscious living, if someone asked me if I had a spiritual experience, I would say, I don't think so. But it moved me unconsciously because I found myself, while I was in chronic pain from this spinal injury. I was walking, but I wasn't able to do any more sports. 
or any more, any lifting. I couldn't sit anymore. So my life changed a lot. And, yeah. and I became more introspective, found myself a few years later in the San Francisco Bay Area in the tenderloin of San Francisco doing social work. And there I had a profound experience because it was the late 80s, early 90s, and the AIDS epidemic broken out in a big way. I was working with a lot of primarily gay men who were losing their brothers. They were a lot had HIV. They all felt the stress and strain of realizing any one of them could be next. And I was working with this community a great deal. And I was working with one person who really, I developed a, a good relationship with. His name was Brad. And he was almost like a shaman to this wow. community. He lived in a homeless encampment with other, his brothers, as he called them. One morning he came in and he was exhausted. And I looked at him and I said, he looked disheveled and beleaguered. And I said, Brad, what happened? What, what's up? And he shared with me, he says, oh, well, Randy died last night. Mm. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And he says, yeah, I am too. But it was so beautiful. And I said, beautiful. He said, tell me. He said, well, when he was dying, we were all surrounding him and a cylinder of light came down and he rose into that cylinder of light. And when he got above us, he stopped and he looked at all of us and said, thank you for caring for me and loving me. And he looked younger and healthy and out of pain. And then he disappeared. And that was the first real shared death experience that I had heard. They did not have a name at this time, yeah. but it stuck with me. I would hear other experiences like that, but no one really talked too loudly about it. And I worked in the Zen hospice later as well. And there I would have more shared death experiences. One that really sealed it for me when I was reading to an individual, call him Ron, and he was very close to death. And just reading him a story as I had done every day that I was sat with him. And during the middle of the story, I popped out of my body and was suspended with Ron above my body and his body. And he looked at me as you do in that realm. I saw his big face, still see it now with a smile, big teeth and big eyes, just really his face and just said, check this out. I mean, he was really getting me to see that this is where he was spending some time and that he was at peace. And I was just taken back. Then I landed back in my body. I don't know how much time eclipsed. Yeah. And that was it. So I, that, that's how I got into this. Later, I would hear Raymond Moody, who did the initial research on this and then started the Share Crossing Project. And as a psychotherapist, I'd been working for a couple decades in grief and bereavement and was always interested in transpersonal uh, spiritual issues or in life in general, but then mm -hmm. found out that there's so many of them in end of life that I just focused. Yeah. Mm, that's also very powerful. And I can see how that early experience at Squaw Valley, I mean, also through reading your book, I get this sense that there are some people that are maybe more in tune or make themselves more available to hearing and experiencing this kind of thing with other people. Um, not like by design or by, <laughs> but it just is, it's so like, and that you have that experience. It's also really interesting to me that it, it probably took from you that thing that you said you, brought you the most joy, but also then put you on this other path that then has become your, your life's work, which is so fascinating how these things unfold. But in hearing about that, how does the field define what is a shared 
death experience. I've had another guest on Sharon Prentice, and I'll link back to it. it was like season two. It's been a long time, but she also had and wrote about a shared death experience with her husband. And that was the first time I'd heard about it. But if you'd explain how you see it and and understand it, I think that'd be really helpful for the audience. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the way uh, the shared death experience is defined is it goes something like this. A loved one or caregiver or even a bystander is either at the bedside or remote at the time of someone who is dying. And they report that they shared in the crossing into a benevolent afterlife. Well, I can go into the main characteristics to really help clarify this. The most important thing about a shared death experience is that we're getting a glimpse as loved ones, caregivers, or bystanders, we're getting a glimpse into this journey. That's the dominant motif the journey from this human life to what lies beyond. And and the themes in terms of characteristics or qualities is highly energetic. There's something about it that pulls you into a different state or experience of sensations within yourself. And the other piece of this would be that there's good sublime feelings. So feelings of love or euphoria, joy would work too. But If you look at the primary characteristic of the shared death experience from our research, 51% of our interviewed experiencers report seeing the dying in some form. 16% report seeing an elevated being of some type that's there essentially to greet the dying, the transitioning individual. 13% report seeing other deceased relatives or friends. 25% will report seeing a a brilliant light. Now, when we bring up light, your viewers may be thinking, oh, this sounds a lot like the NDE, the near-death experience. And indeed it is. Those of us who study this, Raymond Moody in particular, we've had many conversations about these experiences. And we agree that the near-death experience and the shared-death experience are similar, if not identical, in terms of possible phenomena that one can experience. It makes sense. It's a similar landscape. Right. If there is something we're all transitioning to, and it it would make sense that it is also has similar properties, even if we can't quite comprehend what it is from here in this plane. Exactly right. Yeah, it's a similar, it's a similar terrain. And, and we all pass through it. The only experience that I have anywhere near this is that after my grandmother passed away, when I was 10 or 12, and it might have even been on this day that we're recording this at that age. A day later, my sister, myself, and my cousin, we were not in the same rooms. We were not anywhere near each other. We each independently reported to our mom. So our cousin was in Arizona. We were here in California. That grandma came to say goodbye. Now, is that something that's similar? Is that, that's not really a shared death experience so much as, or is it, is that a visitation of sorts? Does that fit into your? That's a beautiful question. I get excited by that question because (laughs) that, that is what we call a remote shared death experience. Mm. So you're not at the bedside, obviously. We weren't. And you're just doing your life, maybe sleeping. Doing math homework in my case. Oh, great. So this is wonderful. So she came and got your attention to say what we call, what we look at the remote, to say, thank you, I love you, goodbye. Mm, Yep, that's exactly what it was. And so 
so incredible that each of us independently, and we were all, so my, I was the oldest. The other two were like probably seven and f- three. Like that each of us had this very overwhelming experience that that was grandma. She came. We knew she was fine. There was not, there was nothing upsetting. It was very much a closure and a love. And because we couldn't have been there, she, she died in the hospital and we weren't allowed to go. But yeah, thank you. That's actually very well, comforting to me. Well, thank you for sharing that because one of the big breakthroughs of our research in this is that two thirds, about 64% of all of our interviewees will report a remote shared death experience, not a bedside. So one th- about roughly one third is a bedside and two thirds are remote. Now this changes everything because you asked a question about, well, was this a vision or a visitation? Well, no, a post-death dream or a post-death vision or visitation, which we also track in our research, is very different because they're coming in and that type of visitation, the person, the deceased that appears, usually appears very stable, very, they're just there and they're coming to you and they're coming with a specific message. Mm -hmm. And then when it's delivered, they disappear. Now in a remote or even bedside, but in a remote SDE, what you'll notice is that you get a sense that they're coming to visit you to tell you, Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. And then you actually will get a sense that they're departing. You will actually feel the journey in them. You'll actually, one of the, we'll go a little bit deep. I love this topic. (laughs) Yes, this is a good one. I like it too. Thank you. So the metaphor that, or the example that I use that made sense for me, because I struggle with how to explain this. I've had uh, numerous of these. It seems like all my relatives will fly by as they're leaving, which is great. I, I, I appreciate it. But the way I define it or describe it is, Do you remember seeing the wonderful Wizard of Oz? I'm probably older than you, but there's that little fairy that comes in and and it's actually in all the Disney features, I think. That beautiful little fairy comes in and comes in and then with her wand, she goes a little, a little, you know, blessing as if a little something like that. And then she leaves. But that's kind of what a shared death experience remote is. It's like this, your deceased loved one comes in, drops right in on you, stops for a second gives you a a sacred communication for sure. Yeah. And touches you deeply. And then you just feel them go quickly and Mm -hmm. they're, and then they're off to wherever they're going. And in your case, which I'd love to hear. In fact, I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to learn more about this when we're offline because multi-person shared death experiences happen about, Mm -hmm. I want to check my research on this. I think it's 11% of the time. But it's around there. So it's not that common, but you don't need to be in the same place, which you weren't with your, it sounds like your cousins and siblings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think my sister and I would have been in different places in the same house. And then the two, my mom and her sister called each other and they said, you know what just happened? So this is really cool. I love that there's like this through line here that we're talking about it too. It's fun. Oh, it's really neat. I just love that you know you've had the experience because you get how profound it is and how it doesn't leave. And yet, I'm going to say something else. I mm-hmm. doubt you were encouraged to talk too much about it. It's not something you go precisely. To, you don't go to show and tell and say anything. Anybody have something they want to share? That's not going to go over very well. And, and those aren't. Yeah. But we're hoping to change that. But here's one other thing, Paula, to mention here is you you asked another great question about. Well, does it have to happen at the time of 
death exactly? Well, our research suggests that about 9% happen a, f- a few hours or up to a day. Even in some cases, we have one case, it was like three weeks in advance, but that person was declining quite a bit. But we also have 14% that will happen after the death, hours, days, typically not too much longer than that. So it's the pattern that we look for. We look for a pattern, and, and I identified this pattern about eight years ago, and now I just feel like when I hear the pattern, it's like, yeah, this is it not- It always falls right in, yeah. It, it just, yeah, it's sad. It's like, yeah, it's a, you, and then you know when you see it. So thank you for sharing that. I love Oh, of course, yeah. I figured I would ask because I'm like, and in reading, so I really, I did enjoy the book immensely, and I saw a bit of some of those stories- in some of them, the continuation, because very much I would, I felt like my grandmother, I could, I can call her back, which that's not really, the, the words don't ever work in this stuff, right? But like the way that the one woman talked about the son, Ben, I think, how she, she knew yeah. he would come back and, and sometimes when she needed him. And I have that sense too, which is, I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is kind of funny. So I love that you talked about that piece as well, that even after a shared death experience, sometimes people will come back and stay with you for a bit of the journey. Absolutely. Yeah, we have that profound example of Michelle losing her son, Ben, at birth, although he was on uh, life support for a few weeks in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yes, this begins, I can begin a relationship that takes place between the living, which is those of us who are still here, and the deceased. And we call this continuing bonds. There's a whole therapy. Those of us in grief and bereavement are are familiar with the continuing bonds model of of therapy, if you will. And people report that synchronistic events, leaving signs here and there, or just coming to them in sleep states, not dreams. Dreams are different. You know when you're having a dream that if someone comes to you in a sleep state, we can tend to call it a dream. But when we look more closely at it, it's a vision or a visitation. And mm-hmm. that's different qualitatively. It's more real than real. It's yeah, because it's in liminal space. That's not like here or there. It's in definitely in the in-between. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. 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 I love liminal space. I also... Uh, I work with labyrinths and that feels like a place where like you're all, once you go into the labyrinth and you're especially at the center, you can feel that kind of swirling liminal space that you've chosen to enter into. I mean, it doesn't always happen, but you can get there. There's something here that's obviously, or to me, obviously a tie to our spiritual side or whatever's in the beyond. What do you feel? Is there a message here? What do you take from this? Or what do you encourage people who have experienced something like this to take from their experience? Well, what I ask in our interviews is what are the after effects of this? Like what, how has this experience impacted you? And what we hear all the time. I know my deceased loved one is alive and well. I know they're in a benevolent. I use that term. They, they may use different adjectives, but they're in a good space and that they'll see them again. The other profound impact is a cessation of anxiety or fear about death and dying. They're not afraid of their own death, yeah. uh, nor that of their loved ones. Their, their grief 
is much different. It's not that you don't miss the person who has left you. That's a whole. When we lose a loved one, there's there's no replacing that. There's no way to get through that type of a loss without heart-wrenching pain. And there's a larger context to hold it in. A mm-hmm. sense that this is the natural destiny of all humanity. We will all die. And so there's an acceptance to that. They have a sense that this is all just the way it's supposed to be. And, and I don't know how to explain that, but there are questions about where their loved one is, what's the purpose of all this. Those questions do not exist anymore. Things hold together a lot more in a lot more meaningful way. That's what we see. And you asked some other questions about spirit, this, maybe the spiritual yeah. impact. What do you feel like this says or what do people feel like this, this says to them about spirituality? How has it impacted them to have that feeling? Well, spirituality is a big term uh, in terms of how it impacts them. (laughs) I will say this. They are experiencers report that they are more spiritual than religious after this experience. Mm, It, it It doesn't mean that they change their religious practices of art, you know, in other words, they don't, they don't change their religion, so to speak. What they do is they may continue to participate in the same religious tradition and they see it differently mm-hmm. and they see it with more of a spiritual lens. So less about beliefs and dogma and more about the mystical qualities that the religious tradition points to. Yeah, because they've experienced some of that mysticism and the unknown in a way that they hadn't before. Exactly. And they and I will say some are disappointed that that their religious tradition doesn't highlight the spiritual, mystical, transcendental aspects of their faith, but they've had this experience that has really in their what we see in the research They've touched something that survives human death and is eternal. And that's a deeply transformative experience that both leaves them in awe of what they experienced, but also a bit more critical of what they're needing for what they're needing and wanting here. And so. Sure. Yeah. Well, because I think you probably do start to see if you have been religious. You can start to see the things that humanity has put on religion, (laughs) the definitions that we have decided are of a certain religion beyond what that thing is that you just know that you can connect to from pure light, pure energy or whatever that was. Yeah, I'm sure that's it's probably both relieving and could be fundamentally shocking (laughs) depending on where you've been religiously. I could see that. You also mentioned that this isn't something that most people are encouraged to speak about or that they don't speak about and that you want to change that. Why is it that you feel like it's something that is not really a commonplace conversation or we're not talking about it the same way we talk about somebody stopping by for dinner? Like, why is that? And and what do you think is coming into play there? I appreciate that question because this gets to the mission of the Shared Crossing Project. But I'll start with it to answer your question directly. And that is, death lives on the margins of our modern culture. Unlike any other time in human history, you know, 100 years ago, 
people would gather for death and dying events in their community. Even older homes have a living room. Well, the living room is for the living. Well, there's another room, it's an anti-chamber, anti-room. And if you notice, some of the older houses have a big entry room. And we call it entry room. If you look at an old house, and that in historic times was where the body would be placed so that the neighbors and the community come by and pay their final respects. Well, we have completely eliminated that in the modern home. And, and that's indicative of our relationship to death. We have exported death wholly to medical providers. Yeah. And in so doing, it's moved it out of the center of our families and communities. And that's a huge loss because mm-hmm. it means that death isn't a part of the mainstream of our existence, yeah. quite frankly, and culture. So that's that one piece. Now, the other piece about it is we do this kind of collectively. One of the, one of the well, I'll say realities is we have a wonderful medical system and it can really work miracles. I mean, just penicillin 70, 80 years ago kept a lot of people from dying of infection. But, but it's also given us some false hope that if you get a cancer diagnosis, let's say, most people be, begin an engagement that sounds something with their medical providers, some, sounds something like, I'm going to fight cancer. I'm going to wait for a cure. I'm going to fight it until a cure comes. There's this sense that somehow we can beat human disease in some way and go on living. Mm-hmm. Think about it. This is a very bizarre development in our modern culture that we just think of death as somewhere out in the future, way out in the future that we don't have to engage with. So what does that mean? Specifically the shared death experience. Well, with death on the margins, you come in and you start talking about death. You've already got one strike against you. Who talks about death? What's the matter with you? You (laughs) should not be talking about death. You're already a weirdo in some way. Yeah. Then you bring up this other experience that's mystical, transcendental, that's not known in our culture, and that's a second strike against you. So I'm just being really clear about how this works, because I work with so many people who have these experiences. They come to me and they ask, the first question is, am I crazy? Did this experience happen? And the second question they ask is, are there others who've had it? Can I, are there other ways that I can learn more about this? Like it's the most profound experience yet. I've never heard anything about it. So think about the trajectory there, the most profound experience they've had in their life. And yet they wonder if they're crazy. Yeah. That's a tough space, right? I mean, especially because then we tie into this place of both joy and grief or dying, like they're the extreme. So we've brought ourselves into the center just to stay safe. I hear you say this, uh, the messy middle. And the death is the messy middle in our culture. And I love your use of that phrase because it's the middle of this life and what lies beyond. It is it is the veil itself. Mm. And, and, mm, and, that is so good, William. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. It's like, and maybe that's why things, when they feel hard or when we're terribly afraid right now, it's really just a glimpse of whatever that transition, like we don't, we are so afraid now to get too close to it that that's what will even put us in a tailspin. And it's fine. I mean, I've also had other difficulties and 
uh, postpartum PTSD. Like I get it. I'm not like I'm not making anyone an other here, but like that's terribly frightening because in that moment, I also had to uh, wrestle with this idea that holy crap, I could be like my myself or my son could die like that. That why is that terrible and frightening? That right there is why that's terrible and frightening. And so the messy middle gets kicked up. But I ooh, that's that right there is really good about how the messy middle really is our transition to whatever is next. So the other piece about this is we live in a society that has that is very research based and very increasingly scientific materialist. So we these experiences live in a invisible realm. You we don't get to see it in our normal waking human experience. This scientific materialism is also the bedrock of medical sciences. And it's wonderful that it is because it requires research and you know all this great double blind studies and what have you uh, to make sure that the procedures that they exercise actually do yield the results that they're claiming. Well, part of this is that medical sciences believes that, and they don't have a lot of research to support this, but it is taught that the brain creates consciousness. So consciousness is dependent on the brain. So our individual sense of being alive is dependent on a brain. Right. Kind and of the, I think, that. therefore, I am. Yes. Descartes. Is Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. You nailed it. So yeah. for them, once you die and your brain shuts down, there mm-hmm. should not be anything more. And yet what we're finding in, this is both the NDE and the shared death experience, What we're finding is that people healthy in mind and body, caregivers and loved ones, will report that they saw their loved one leave this earth and go to another dimension. And we have a pattern for this now. We've identified it. Well, this is something the medical sciences has no theoretical framework to account for. So it's not safe. And you get this, you know this, even if you're not even cognitively aware of it. If you're in a medical setting and you share this, you may not be well received. Or this experience may be, I always say, and I see this in the research, may be discounted, dismissed, or disparaged. Now, I say that, but there are so many wonderful hospice nurses and end-of-life practitioners and chaplains and spiritual care, not as many medical doctors, but everybody else who provides the care for you is generally open to these experiences. So I don't want to paint a very overly negative picture, but I will say to you that there's not room for these experiences to be shared openly. My research group has published the first article on these experiences based on our robust research in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. And and this is the first significant study of any kind. And I will say the reviewers thankfully stated almost, they were, I dare say they were happy about this because they said, we know these experiences happen. 
but no one's ever been able to study them in the way that you seem to have been. And that was because I have been talking and doing research and speaking nationally and internationally at a variety of conferences for almost a decade. And as I've done this, more and more people started coming forward to share these experiences. I mean, we have so many experiences. If your listeners have an experience that we welcome them, we continue to collect them and document them and analyze them and learn more. But the point being is that this experience, I think an analogy would be, think of the near-death experience in the mid-70s when Raymond Moody first wrote his book, Life After Life, and introduced the near-death experience right. in a big way. We, we think this is going to happen for the shared death experience because we know they happen. We right. know that. Look at you. We're just having this interview here, Paula. And- yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I've had this experience. Yeah. 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 It is very interesting because even back at UC Santa Barbara, I was a religious studies major, major and I don't know what, I believe there was might have been death, afterlife, and the soul, but we studied NDAs, and it felt, but it still felt a little like taboo, like ooh, we're getting a little too close here. And I mean, so I'm grateful for having had that experience, and then having had on yourself and Sharon and talking about shared death experiences. So yeah, I'm happy to share the the, the word about it because I think it is very, it's very interesting that we just close down and don't talk about it. And assume that, oh, it was just me or it was just a fluke or it was just a fleeting thing and I imagined it or I was bored of my math homework, which doesn't honor anyone. So that would that we write we write it off as not being real. So yeah. And and it's interesting too, I mean, just kind of to to wrap back around as well with like you having had an experience of an NDE early on. I mean, I could also see that having had my grandmother visit. Sure. Is maybe that why I went into religious studies? Is, is that why I took biblical Hebrew? Is that there's a through line here that is is way beyond just like what's obvious to the eye if somebody looked at my CV or whatever to figure out what in the world I'm doing. But yeah, fascinating for sure. A great question about how that your SDE with your grandmother impacted you, the role that that, that played in you unconsciously largely. I think for me, there's no doubt about it that it, as I've already shared. But then again, I wasn't talking about it either. Right. Can't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Not allowed. Yeah. It's totally fascinating. I love the, I love that those two things kind of cross over. I wonder too, if there's something in here, because so the season seven is all about intentional comfort. And I picked that after we've been through the messy middle or so we thought of the pandemic. <laughs> How do you feel like this kind of shared death experiences, or at least the acknowledgement of them can bring us into this place of more comfort. I, I feel like it has a huge potential for that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Boy, I agree with you. And that's the aspiration for writing this book at this time, is that when people know about these experiences, the shared death experience, and know about the peace, the calm, the comfort that it brings to the bereaved, it's going to allow us to get closer to death. Mm. It's going to allow us to move into relationship to death and dying in a way that our culture has not done. And when we do that, we will be able to embrace and engage with not just the mysteries and the wonder of the SDE, but of a whole host of other experiences that happen 
pre-death visions and visitations, post-death visions, visitations, synchronicities throughout. All of this experience rotate around death and dying and end of life and grief and bereavement. That whole section of life that our culture looks at as something you just get through. I don't look at, when I work with people, I often in grief and bereavement, they'll often hear us like, when will I go back to the way I was? I just want to be the way I was before. Well, the truth of the matter is we don't really go back in life. But what we can do is embrace the experiences we have and allow them to transform us, allow them to evolve us. And we find that when we're growing and evolving in that way, that there's an inherent joy because we're constantly on our edge. We're constantly becoming, and there's an excitement in that. It can also be a bit terrifying, but by and large, I think human beings are innately curious. And so if if we allow ourselves to be curious about that, which we fear, the shared death experience, uh, a death itself, if you're curious about death and dying and you come across, across the shared death experience, which you're going to have to nowadays, this changes everything. And all of a sudden you've opened in this whole new uh, vista of what is possible uh, at end of life. And this ongoing connection to our loved ones that transcends human death. Yeah, because it really it does pull away some of the fear, if we are no longer afraid of death, then it feels like so much more joy is possible here and now if we're not always just worried about that transition. Just worried about. <laughs> I like how I just simplified that. But but it does seem like it's, is it a predominant thought for most people that they're very preoccupied with their own death? Do you think? There's a lot. I mean, There are psychological tomes written on this. Certainly Freud said that one of the major causes of mental illness was unconscious fear of death. But I think our society in a lot of ways has so pushed death to the margins that that it's hard to know where it really lives in people Mm, and their thoughts about it. Because my most common thing when I'm, you know, working with people not so much an end of life, but I think most people will say something like, yeah, I know I'm going to die. I know so-and-so is going to die, but just not now. So I'm not, I don't need to deal with it. There's this whole thing with death. About like, yes, of course, we all know we're going to die, but not now. So it's not going to be, it's not worthy of any intention at this point. And then when we get a diagnosis or someone dies, we seem somehow betrayed by life. Somehow a wrong has been done to us. And yet- right. It's the only thing we know that's going to happen to us here is that we're going to die. Yeah. And I'm thinking the reason I kind of laughed just then even was like, I think in Hamlet, like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern make some line about the only thing that's true for our entire lives from the day we're born to the day we die. Like we're just kicking and screaming towards the same end. And it's like when you absorb that kind of a thinking, like it's so crazy, amazing. It like lands really hard. But yeah, that's interesting. I think you're right. It's the same as an inconvenient truth of, you know, the, of the, of ecology and whatnot. Like, oh, well, we'll deal with it when it's a problem. And and we can see where we're not dealing with it can get us, whatever that thing is. Yeah. Well said. That's exactly, it seems to me, and this is one thing that we do in, you know, our programs is 
I, I'm very focused on the shared death experience in my research. But when I'm working with people who want to come into relationship with death and dying, and there's a lot of people that do, particularly people that have elderly aging parents of any type, they'll say, I want to do death well. I've seen other deaths and they're over-medicalized or they were too painful or there wasn't enough care. Or, so they want to do it differently. And so they'll come to me and my organization and we'll, they'll say, how do we do this differently? And, the th- and what I say is you have to prepare yourself for a conscious, connected, and loving end of life. And what that means is get conscious about the fact you're going to die and realize that you have choices and, and we can prepare you for those choices. And the other piece is get connected to the people in your life that matter to you and start talking about this now. Mm, Start engaging with that, I want to say, you know, kind of that taboo subject. Yeah. Yeah. Pull the, pull out this skeleton in the closet. It's like, no one wants to talk about this. But if you don't talk about it now while you have time and you have space and you can mull it over, then you're going to get forced into a situation, which quite frankly, most Americans do. Where you got a, a death event, you got a threat of death, whether it's cancer or a car accident or a heart attack or a stroke, and no one's prepared. But if you can do those first two things, you know, conscious, connected, and then you can really express your love for each other and really engage in those healthy expressions of gratitude, then there's a lot more space to both prepare for death and to eventually be with death. Yes. Thank you. That's very beautiful. I'd love to dive into the to talking about at Heaven's Door. What really impressed me about the book is that the I mean the three stories listeners that you heard at the beginning that William was talking about are in the book and there's so many other stories and I feel like the real what the power of this is that you get to hear these stories of real people told in a very authentic way. And then we get your clinical experience on top of it to better understand like what's going on with these people. And I love how it unfolds in that way because it's, you just don't want to put it down. And I love that about a book as in, in nonfiction. So if you want to talk about it a little bit more, I just, I really enjoyed it. So thank you for putting it out there for us. Well, thank you. I loved hearing what you said, because that's what I tried to do. I tried to let these ordinary people like you and I from all over the globe talk about their experiences. I mean, we kicked the book off with somebody in Australia, a mother in Australia and a mother in West Virginia, both losing a child and having a very similar experience. The similar experience being that they were both saw, they both saw their deceased loved ones, grandparents in one case, father in the other case, come down and say, essentially, I'm going to take your baby. I'm going to take care of, you know, him. In both cases, it was, uh, they were boys. Yeah. And, and that's so powerful. And I just try to let these cases, these personal stories speak for themselves. And then I do. The pattern is so profound. I've seen it hundreds of times now. And I, I you know, really try to identify what it is that makes up a shared death experience, why this pattern is so easy to define, how common it is, And then, of course, I talk about how meaningful it is. Ultimately, the stories are phenomenal, but they're helpful in not just pointing to who we are as human beings, but pointing to who we are beyond our human life, the essence, the soul, the spirit of us. And 
almost every experiencer will say, I survived this life. I know that. And that's a gift. And it helps me realize how precious this human experience is. But it also helps me know that where I'm going next is also a benevolent, loving realm that I'm looking forward to. So it just enriches my life in every way. Yeah. 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 And I definitely got that through these stories. Yeah. And and it was very interesting to hear of other people and then reflect on my own experience. And, and I'm grateful that I got to ask you about it. If somebody wants to get a copy of At Heaven's Door, where can they find it? And also, if you want to talk a little bit more about the Shared Crossing Project, also fascinating. I'd love to hear more Thank about you. that. Yeah. So the book can be purchase pretty much anywhere where you have whoever your favorite book purveyor is. I'm blessed to be with Simon & Schuster. They're making this one of their lead books for 2022. They're kicking off with it. So we're really, I'm really, I have loved working with them. They've been just so professional. So, you know, and if you have a local bookstore, all you have to do is, because you know, I love supporting local bookstores, you can just call them up and they can get it really quickly. So thank you for that. Um, the Share Crossing Project, we, we're death educators, really, as well as researchers. I mean, that boil it down, sound, stated simply, we help people understand what these spiritual, transcendental experiences are at the end of life, all of them. The, we, I've created a whole spectrum of end-of-life experiences. You can see that. You can, there's resources on our webpage. And then we have programs. We used to do everything in person, and now we're moving everything online. So we in January, we're kicking off a slate of programs and I'll primarily be the, the teacher and I have some others on our staff that will be helping as well. So please check us out. If it's interesting, great. If you have a story, uh, any end of life story, then just go to our website and you can submit it and our team will get back to you pretty quickly. Thank you for that. That whole book is written because people took the courage to share their story, similar to what you did today, Paul, just putting it out there. And we read them, we study them, and then we'll get back to you. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you. I will put all of those links in uh, the show notes so people can find you, they can get to the book. And uh, I hope I hope you'll get some stories from listeners. There's a lot of life coaches and a lot of people that are open to this realm of things. So hopefully some of you will write in and, and share your your stories. Well, you know what? I just want to get say, I really like that you mentioned life coaches because increasingly life coaches are coming to us because they are understanding. They understand how important it is when they're working with life and purpose and finding out what matters and developing careers and working with family issues and all of that, how important death is and how important it is to have a true and thoughtful relationship with this great event called death. And so increasingly, you know, these life coaches are coming to us and taking our program. We have a program for professionals called a Shared Crossing Practitioner Certification Program. And it really is designed for people who work intimately with others in a, not so much a, both a clinical way, but also just in a deep, intentional way. And it, it just helps people explain these experiences and, and engage with them around them. So thank you for that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I love that. Probably another topic, possibly a different podcast, but I I truly 
part of the trajectory of of even getting to this show. And I am a certified life coach and all that, but I'm not practicing anymore. But I was so fascinated by the question of what to say to someone when they've lost someone. Like that question has been something that's truly fueled some of my life decisions on like, how do I figure that out? Because I, I just wanted to know. But so yeah, I will I'll point people to that as well. That's an awesome, awesome offering. Before we wrap up, would you like to tell us what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life, in the world, or in other people's lives? Yeah. Wow, that's a great, profound question. The first one I would say is be kind to yourself. I find that one of the ways in which I can experience joy in myself is really be kind to myself. And that's a practice that I do. It's a well-known practice, certainly in, in Buddhism, loving kindness meditations and compassion, self-compassion meditations. I think that's a practice for me that really helps me because life is hard and, and there are difficult things that come up and having compassion uh, brings me back to center. The second one I would say is do what you love. I'm really blessed that I'm able to do what I love and it just brings me so much joy. I have a staff that feels the same way. We get to help people explore these amazing experiences and it's, and that's just not in my work life. That's also get exercise and swim in the water and do the things I love. And the other thing that I think is just the substrate of being a human being is we're so connected. I remember uh, one teacher saying to me, if you're not having a good day, go out and help somebody. Go out and help somebody. So do something to help another person. And that does a couple things. Gets us off ourselves if we're not having a good day. And and it really allows us to realize that we can bring joy to others or at least help them and helping others we see that we have meaning. Our life has meaning. And that feels good. It does. Mm, Thank you very much, William. This has been such a treat to have you on the show. And thank you for sharing all about your book and your amazing work. Well, thank you, Paula, for having me. I very much enjoyed the interview and hope we can talk again sometime. William, thank you so much for being on the show this week and for writing this really amazing book that details more about what shared death experiences are and bringing the conversation around this to the forefront. I really appreciated that I got to ask questions about my own shared death experience and learn more about it here. It's such an interesting topic. And I really hope that you, if you're in the audience and you're wondering if you've experienced this yourself, that you'll share those moments or those stories with William and his team over at the Shared Crossing Project, because I think it's so important for us to continue to bring these conversations into the mainstream. If you want to find out more about William or purchase his book at Heaven's Door or find out more about the Shared Crossing Project, you can get those links in the episode notes. Just click through in your podcasting app or head over to jumpstartyourjoy.com. And if you've listened to the very end here, I want to announce a couple of things that I've done that are really cool moving forward. One, if you really appreciate this show and you've been listening for the past seven years, I would love it if you would log on to the website, jumpstartyourjoy.com, and you can support the show by buying me a cup of coffee. And you'll see a link right there. You just go through and send me a cup of coffee. (laughs) 
it's that easy. Uh, it helps support the show. And I will give those who do give a donation a shout out at the end of every show. And so this week's shout out goes to Marsha Flowers of 5B and Co Candles. She's been on the show and I love her candles. They are the best smelling candles I've ever had. And you can go make a purchase and support her and her small business over at 5B and Co Candles. And I'll put a link to her in the show notes as well. The other interesting thing that I just launched that I could not be more excited about is my own YouTube channel. You can visit youtube.com and look for Paula Jenkins. I'll put a link in the show notes as well. And you can see the videos of these conversations that I'm now recording and editing and putting out there for you to watch along. So if you prefer to consume this kind of content as a video, or you just want to see us talk, (laughs) be sure and look up that link. So next week on the show, I'm really excited to further this conversation to kind of dive in a little bit on a different angle of the discussion that William and I had this week. And that is I'm going to share a solo cast all about liminal space and liminal space Liminal space can mean a lot of different things, and I find it to be both comforting and interesting, and I want to share more about it in next week's episode. So I hope you'll come on back for that, and until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy.